0: Filmmakers and genres that consensus has deemed important, and thus I have created this podcast to document my journey into cinematic edification. This month I'm exploring the films of Bong Joon-ho as recommended by writer-director Jim Mickle. Still kind of exciting to say that. And in this week's episode I'll be talking about uh, Bong Joon-ho's 2006 film, The Host. And before I get into a discussion on that episode, I want to tell everyone listening, if you have the means, go and see *Parasite*. Uh, my fiance and I went to go see it this past weekend. Um, we'd heard a lot of buzz about it. Obviously the Palme d'Or winner, some people are saying it's got a, a chance at winning Best Picture at the Oscars. I don't know if that's, um, uh, foolish or not, but, uh, certainly there was enough buzz and enough hype, and I know Jim Mickle was very excited about it, so it felt like something that we kind of had to see to be part of the cultural discussion, and it is, um, it's a wonderful experience when you see a film that lives up to all the hype that you've heard about it. To just see, it, it just feels like such a satisfying experience. It is everything that you would come to expect from Bong Joon-ho. Um, in the way that he blends um, his tones together, in the way that he tells a story which has uh, quite a a abiding commentary on class discrepancy within um, South Korean culture. It is a wonderful film, definitely in my top ten of this year, and I'm fairly confident that um, come the end of the year it's going to be firmly rooted up there in the top half of the list. Um, and including, you know, uh, what will likely be BP nominees, uh, nominations on my end for screenplay, lead actor, um, and director as well. So if you have the means, if you live in a city where it is playing, go and see it. Um, if you do not live in a city or near a place where it is, is going to be seen, then as soon as it comes out, uh, on any type of retinal platform, Amazon or whatever, um, by all means, please do go out and see it. Uh, it is going to be very much worth your time and your money. Um, And watching uh, Parasite, actually, as it ties in here, it it sort of helped me, in retrospect, appreciate both the host and memories of murder um, a bit more uh, in in the sense of kind of uh, eventually looking back and seeing how he started or how he was kind of developing his craft and what would only sort of become, like, Boon Jong-ho's signature filmmaking style and just kind of seeing that just perfected, basically, and and masterfully crafted in Parasite. It's sort of, I mean, certainly, you know, we hope that he's going to be making many films after this, but it really kind of feels like it's going to be very difficult for him to top the achievement that he has uh, achieved for, sorry for being redundant in that sense, Um, but just kind of seeing, especially with uh, with Memories of Murder a bit more than the host, I have to say, um, just kind of seeing how he like I said, how he blends those moods together, how he does have this um, this commentary on, uh, on on kind of a social classes in South Korean culture, and um, also helped me realize that, uh, I don't want to say all of his movies, I can only attest to the ones that I've seen, but how they seem to be rooted in some type of truth, whether that be... Based on a true story, such as um, the serial murders, uh, the first serial murders uh, murders in South Korean history that inspired Memories of Murder, or uh, the true story that inspired the host, and I say true a little bit loosely, but I'll get to that in a little bit, or in just kind of a a a societal or um, economic truth that uh, exists. In South Korea right now, which was the the kind of the inspiration or the basis for the story that he was going to tell in *Parasite*. He does start uh, his films once again, prefacing this as the films that I've seen, in some type of truth and building it off and building off of that to tell a story that he can um, use it as sort of a a, to to satirize something or to comment on something. Um, And uh, the host was. Um, based on some true events, or at least uh, that opening scene in which we see uh, the actor whose name is escaping me, but he played uh, the old guy that was killed in *The Walking Dead*, um, telling his uh, his uh, lab assistant to dump out a bunch of formaldehyde just because the bottles were dusty, um, is based on on a, an event that did actually happen. And I'm going to uh, read just based on uh, the, the 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 tidbit in the IMDb uh, trivia just to kind of. Um, set some context, and I'll kind of bring it back to this a little bit later, but uh, so bear with me while I read for a little bit. The event described in the beginning of the film is based on an actual event. In February 2000, at a U.S. military facility located in the center of Seoul, a U.S. military civilian employee named Mr. McFarland was ordered to dispose of formaldehyde by dumping it into the sewer system that led to the Han River, despite the objection of a South Korean subordinate. The government attempted to prosecute Mr. McFarland in court, but the U.S. military refused to hand over the custody of Mr. McFarland to the South Korean legal system. Later, a South Korean judge convicted Mr. McFarland in absentia. The public was enraged at the government's inability to enforce its law on its own soil. In 2005, nearly five years after the original incident, Mr. McFarland was finally found guilty in a court in his presence. However, he never served the prison sentence, and there have been no sightings of a mutant creature in the Han River yet. I do kind of love how that trivia bit ends with, uh, you know, open to the possibility, of course, that at some point in the future, a uh, mutated sewer creature could emerge from the Han River and uh, carry off all of our children. But um, it's, it's I don't know if it's if it's hugely important, but to me, it's important that that story is. Um, is the basis of something that is kind of the inciting incident for this film because of how it ties into what Bong Joon-ho does with his films and does specifically in this film as as a bit of a, uh, a commentary on um, not just uh, class but also the influence of foreign powers and specifically kind of the, the American foreign powers on South Korean culture to kind of set that up to plant the seed in her mind but then to not kind of b- not be heavy-handed about it not to kind of keep going back and beating over the head with it just kind of plant something in your subconscious which adds kind of a flavor and a context to the film that you're going to be um seeing and while parasite and memories of murder were um a bit more explicit with its exploration of of class separation um while that's not necessarily the the focus of the host why that's well that's not necessarily the thing that kind of propels us through the story or kind of perpetuates the the narrative and and what the, the characters are doing it does kind of set the context of the film at least in the sense of you have to kind of believe and understand that if um if gang Du and his family were sort of above the class that they're in if they were citizens that were a bit well-off in, in terms of their financial realities, you have to kind of believe that they would not be subjected to the horrors that they go through. I mean, sure, uh, the monster does, uh, you know, abduct Gangdu's daughter, but one thing that's sort of uh, very interesting to me about the film is, is just this idea of how they are always, you know, the family and the just the citizens that are around them are always subject to... Uh, a force that is larger than than them and that they really have no control to fight against. They are kind of like the detectives in memories of murder. They are not equipped to deal with the forces that have control over them or that are controlling their destiny. Um, In memories of murder, it it, it was sort of just more that there was um, uh, a, a, a knowledge base or, or an emotional um, level that they couldn't get to, that they couldn't overcome to really solve the case, and also that they didn't have uh, the the necessary evidence, of course. But in the host, it's more. It starts with a you know, of course, this giant, huge monster, which just kind of seems horrific, and 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 no one kind of knows, you know, where it came from, what caused it. I mean, we know what caused it, of course, but the citizens don't. And it just is, is this this horrific super force that they really don't have the physical ability to overcome. But then it is, it is exacerbated by. Government forces which quarantine an entire section of the city and don't allow anybody to leave it. The only way that Gang du and his family are able to eventually leave it when they sneak out of the hospital and steal a truck and kind of leave is they bribe a guard to let them through. It is money, it is access to uh finances which ultimately gets them out of this um this government-controlled situation. And there's a scene later on in the film, like after uh Gang du and everyone has sort of escaped from well, Gangdu is still a a a prisoner, of course, and they want to do some more medical testing on him. But after um, his siblings have escaped from the city, and um, Nam Il is uh, is is connecting with his friend who is trying to help him trace the cell phone call of Gangdu's daughter. Um, it, it takes place in a, a downtown center of what I have to imagine is is Seoul, um, with large high rises and, and and you know skyscrapers and all that sort of thing. And the citizens that you see are largely unaffected by what has been going on um, with the monster and with the government quarantine. They are far away from it and there are wanted posters on, uh, on city streets for Gangdu and his family. It's, it's, it's almost sort of while they are wanted because they are allegedly infected by something, something which we find out later is, is a complete illusion. There is no virus that they are infected by. You can almost kind of believe and feel the subtext of they are wanted because they are, not because they are poor, but because they are separate, because they are other from the citizens who are going about their day, um, you know, in their in their fancy suits, going to work and, and you know, in, in their office buildings, in their cars. And there's a sense of like we are skeptical of these people because they are separate from us and because they are different from us. And that, once again, that that's a seed which is kind of planted in the beginning and just kind of perpetuates based on, once again, not anything, not anything that's in the text, not because Bang Jun Ho is hitting you over the head with it, but because there are things within this environment, within this reality, which sort of supports it, which ultimately culminates, uh, of course, in the uh, the fantastic climax at the end when they do finally kill the monster. Um, but the imagery that is evoked when the monster is being killed are are. This idea of student protests, um, political protests. Of course, what the students are protesting in the film is the use of Agent Yellow. You know, this chemical agent which is going to likely kill the monster, but will also um, have some adverse health effects for the citizens of the city that are being exposed to it. But the look, in the sense of the the groups and the signs and. Um, You know, just just the energy of it does feel very much like a political protest, like, you know, like like college student protests, which kind of set the scene in the 1980s in in, in the in the time of when Memories of Murder was taking place. And um, one of the things which ultimately contributes to the killing of the monster is, of course, Molotov cocktails that Nam-il is is throwing um, after they have soaked the monster with gasoline. Um, And once again, Molotov cocktails, which are such a, uh, you know, um, a, a lot of times in pop culture, but also in real life, are sort of the, these staples of these um, violent armed protests and riots. You know, it, it's it's very purposeful, evocative imagery that Bong, Joon, that Bong Joon-ho uses in his monster movie, which is also, once again, kind of within this emotional and societal context of class separation, of a separateness and an otherness between um, different demographics in a city, and, and, and one of which that is oppressed and feels very much like they are oppressed and is fighting back against it. Um, and as I said, it starts with this this opening, uh, which has this uh, this idea of this insidious kind of U.S. foreign influence into this country, uh, but it, on, on a surface level, it also has kind of a a fun B-movie feel to it. I mean, it kind of um, in one way, it sort of sets the tone in the sense of like, OK, we're 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 in for a monster movie here, which is very much going to be um, in the vein of sort of these 1950s, you know, super monsters like um, them or uh, later in the 1960s with uh, Godzilla or, um, you know, these these um, old monster movies, which is basically like, hey, there was nuclear fallout or some type of thing that ultimately ended up causing what seemed to be a, a innocent, um, you know kind of innocuous creature to become this horrific thing that would eventually destroy the humanity that created it with this you know very sly wink and nudge about like you know we're making a commentary here about something and and it, it sets that up and continues that throughout the film but then halfway through has a twist or, or not even so much a twist but it has basically a a, a change in direction um and I remember, and I think I expressed this to Jim, and I know I've, I've expressed this to some friends, of how when I saw the host the first time, the fact that it was totally sort of what I said at the time was mixed, really kind of was off-putting to me. I just couldn't really deal with the fact that it was like, you know, this, I, I can't tell whether this movie wants to be serious or whether this movie wants to be funny. And then, of course, a year later, looking back and seeing it again, it's like, well, the film wants to be both, and it is both. And I remember getting, when I was finished watching it again for this time, I texted my friend Jeff. Um, Jeff, if you've been listening to this podcast for a long time, was a. He, he came on, he was kind of a, the host. Uh, wow. Well, I. No pun intended. I apologize for that. But was a sort of the host for um, an episode, uh, the 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 episode that I did a few Christmases ago, in which um, I talked about the films of Billy Wilder, and he sort of filled the role of me, and I filled the role of the guest and enthusiast, and then uh, gave me an excuse to revisit some of my favorite Billy Wilder films. But um, he loves this film, and he has loved this film since it came out in two thousand six. And um, I'll admit that I, I like this film. It didn't do as much for me. Um, as Memories of Murder did, and I texted him about that and just and just kind of asked him to sort of explain his en- enthusiasm for it, and his response, I will read it to you, he says, I like the weird rhythm of it. You think it's going to be a monster movie, and then it gets stopped in its tracks to become this uncomfortable meditation on grief. I also appreciate that it has a bit of what Spielberg at least said he was going for with Jurassic Park, where the monster is really just an animal, not some supernaturally malicious actor. There's a moment in Fallen Kingdom where the villain dinosaur literally winks at the audience before he chomps on a dude, and that's kind of the opposite of the host. Um, And that made a lot of sense in the sense of, like, there is this creature that is doing what we find to be objectively terrible things, but it's also not an evil creature by any means. Like, it is just trying to survive, and by doing that, by creating a creature that is like that, it allows the film to be about more than just the creature, you know? I mean... Um, you know, if, if it was this horrific sentient evil thing, then we would have to spend more time exploring well, why is this thing evil? Why did it come to be this way? What does it want from us, and how can we destroy it? And by being just kind of like a force, basically, um, you know, by being sort of almost just a, a, a physical embodiment of a natural disaster, it allows the film to explore more than just. Um, the physical consequences of its devastation. It allows the film to explore the emotional consequences of its devastation as well, which leads to, as Jeff said, kind of being a film which is this meditation on grief. And some of the film's most powerful moments are just the ones where we see the family responding to the grief of losing, or you know what they think they have lost—a daughter, or a granddaughter, or a niece, basically. Um, I, you know, and in, 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 in credit to, to Bong Joon-ho, it's it's very kind of thrilling and exciting, and, and, and you're kind of confused when the monster just starts attacking, not for the least of reasons, is because it takes place entirely during the day, so it doesn't really have this horror feel. It has this very much kind of in-your-face, catching-you-off-guard feel once the attacks start. But then once, uh, once um, Gang-do loses his daughter... Um, we eventually get to a scene where uh, there's a, just a bunch of citizens who have survived the attack, mourning the loss of their loved ones. And the entire family, you know, Gang du and his brother and his sister and his father all just sort of collapse to the floor in grief. And I'll be honest, part of me almost kind of started giggling during that scene because of how sort of over the top the actors were playing it. It's not necessarily supposed to be a comedic moment but it is sort of I think it hints or 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 harkens back to what Bong Joon-ho does in the sense of he he makes sort of some very dramatic moments almost kind of a little bit slapsticky and goofy not because he doesn't want us to take the scene seriously but because he wants to allude towards um kind of a larger forces which he finds to be absurd and I don't think I explained that very well, so I guess I'll just kind of give a more specific example because later on in that scene, there is a guy who comes through in a hazmat suit with a, a, um, why am I blanking on the name of those things? A megaphone, that's what it is. He comes through in a megaphone to eventually kind of announce to everyone, like anyone who was a survivor of the attack or had physical contact with a creature, you know, he wants to wrangle them up and basically quarantine them further But his introduction is he comes in and slips and falls on the floor and then gets up and tries to pretend like he's a very smooth, like, natural presence and then just kind of goes on with his day. This character is ridiculous, but this character is a symbol of power and he is in control of the situation. The forces that he represents are in control of all these people and in control of the quarantine. And by making his introduction goofy, by having this guy literally fall on his ass on the floor and then get up and pretend as though... Yeah, I meant to do that. Bong Jun ho is kind of telling us, like, this force, these people, these government, this authority which is in control of the situation, they are fucking absurd. Um, not in the sense of, like, they're all goofballs, but in the sense of to assume that any, any body of authority knows exactly what is right, has all the answers, and tries to impart that onto, not even impart that, but enforce that on a, their citizens... Those people are absurd. This system of power is absurd. This system of control, this system of separation, this is all absurd. So I don't think that, you know, introducing laughs into a serious scene is Boom Jong-ho saying, look at how silly these people are, but just kind of look, look at how absurd the situation is that they are in. And I, I don't think I was able to, uh, to recognize that and appreciate that when I first saw it, but I, I did recognize it and appreciate it this time. And the host also does have some scenes of great emotional tenderness. There is, uh, I'm thinking specifically of the scene, it's, I guess it's about halfway through when they're looking through the daughter and they kind of eventually stumble upon um, a food stand and all four of them just kind of, you know, gather in and they're, they're, they're in close proximity to each other and they're eating with each other and they're not really saying anything. And yet partway through eating, the daughter kind of emerges from underneath the table and nobody says anything. We know that this can't be real because the daughter is missing. We, we know that this is some type of, has to be a dream sequence or a, a vision of some kind, but the daughter emerges from underneath the table and one by one, each of the family member recognizes her and holds out to her a piece of food so that she can eat, so that she can join them, so that they can be a family again. And nobody verbally recognize or, or or acknowledges what is going on. They just kind of one by one, they see her, they extend the food to her, and they are just together as a family as it should be. And it's an illusion, but it's so tender. And it comes right in the middle of just, God, the you know, people have been killed, and the government is quarantining people, and they are on the run, and they are trying to get as far away from the quarantine zone as possible, and yet they have this moment of of just this brief break of tenderness. And the fact that it is false is so bittersweet. And of course, we can't talk about bittersweetness until really the end of the film in which, um, you know, in a a standard kind of Hollywood um, monster movie, like a you know like a Jurassic Park or or like a, a War of the Worlds if you want to consider that to be a monster movie the family is of course happily reunited and everyone is safe and everyone is is together again and that's not the case here because the family is reunited but it's it's just a, a, a fraction of what it was the grandfather has been killed and the 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 daughter despite her her resiliency, despite everything she was doing, despite taking a younger child under her wing and trying to protect this child from the monster, the daughter also succumbs. And so we don't get that happy ending. We don't get that reunion that every movie kind of has come to lead us to expect. And really, it's sort of, um, it's kind of the, the natural fruition of this journey that started with gross government and foreign incompetence ultimately resulting in this cascade of negative consequences that resulted in this intimate picture of grief. And now, it is, once again, bittersweet and touching because that child that the daughter protected, Gangdu does take that child under his wing, that child who also had no family because of what happened with the monster and what happened in the city. They become this makeshift family together. And it sort of furthers this, or or not furthers, but it completes this development and and this arc of this character who started out as so incompetent that he was literally falling asleep, or was literally asleep at the food stand, that his father had to lift his head and pull the change out from, like, stuck under his cheek in order to, to, to give change to the woman who was trying to make a food purchase at the beginning. Grossly incompetent at the beginning, and incredibly responsible at the end, but... ...having gone through just the ringer of, an, uh, of, a, of a traumatic experience that was caused by outside forces. I was thinking of... Um, uh, ...when it comes to this idea of this, uh, the absurdity and, and this idea of any figure of authority kind of presuming that they have all the answers... I was reminded actually of a, of a conversation I recently had with my therapist in which we were talking about how uh, basically how damaged people can kind of become in charge of the country. Let's say become a senator or I don't know, maybe a president or a, a member of a Supreme Court, let's say. And he, was ta- and he gave me this metaphor of like um, a lot of adults are basically just kind of five-year-olds with briefcases and yet they're in charge of a lot of decisions that affect the entire country. And so just kind of thinking about that, of like, government quarantines an entire section of the city. They subjected Gangdu to quarantine, to separation from his family, to a plethora of tests to try and find a virus that doesn't even exist. And yet they're going to go so far as to give this man brain surgery to try and support an agenda that has no support, to try and fulfill a story, a fictitious story that they have made up to maintain control. These are all just kids masquerading as adults, trying to maintain their own authority and their own influence and their own power. It's fucking absurd. And Bong Joo ho recognizes that. So he gives us a character in a hazmat suit whose introduction to us is slipping and falling on his ass before he attempts to exert his authority on everyone else. Or he gives us scenes where we're almost trying to hold back our laughter because we know that it should be gravely serious instead. Because there is this absurdity that exists in real life. There exists this inherent absurdity in a society and in a culture which continues to perpetuate this extreme class separation. It is a a wonderful meditation on intimate grief, and it is also a a wonderful satire and exploration of how ridiculous it is that in 2019, not only do we still have these inequalities, but there are people at play, there are forces at play, there are authoritaries, authoritaries, that's not a word. Authorities. There are authorities at play that continue to perpetuate this myth and this separation. I think I just talked myself into liking this movie more than when I started this podcast. So, take that for, for what you will, listener. But, um, and Also, and if you agree with everything I just said, you do owe it to yourself, as I said, to go see Parasite. It is such a fantastic movie. And it is... The best exploration of these ideas that I could possibly uh, imagine it being. But um, if you are uh, content to just instead rewatch the host, or perhaps you've uh, seen Parasite already and you agree with me, um, it's easy enough to do that. Um, if you want to get uh, the host for free, this is kind of weird. These are the services you can go to Hoopla, Tubi, and Pluto TV. Now, I'm guessing you've probably never heard of those before, so allow me to um, edify you a little bit. Hoopla is similar to Canopy in the sense of it's a kind of a streaming service that uh, public libraries will offer you. Canopy, unfortunately, uh, rest in peace, will no longer be offered in New York City, which is kind of a shame. Um, Hoopla, I'm not entirely sure. That's H-O-O-P-L-A. I don't know in which cities it's offered, but it's something to look into. Um, it's one of those free services you get when you get a, a library membership. And Tubi, T-U-B-I, and Pluto TV are uh, did a little bit of research on this. hadn't heard of them before. Um, they're free, ad-supported platforms, so you don't have to have a membership, but you do have to sit through ads, commercial breaks, and um, from what I understand, lengthy breaks in between titles if you if you choose to see them. And 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 just like um, you know, a lot of those services are sure you're going to be able to see the host. But then you're also going to have to probably, like, well, not wade through. You don't have to watch it. But, like, they'll have the host. But for every one of the hosts, they'll have five, I don't know, Chuck Norris versus Chainsaw Motorcycle Cat or something. I don't know. It, but it's basically, you know, it, it, there's going to be good stuff. And there's going to be a whole lot of shit. And then, of course, you have to sit through some commercials. Um, I thought that it was free with Amazon Prime. But actually, it's only free if you have a um, Magnolia Selects membership through, uh, Amazon Prime, so, um, it's a cheap rental on Prime, it's only about, I don't know, a dollar or two, I suppose, so it's worth it, but, um, you can, you're gonna have to rent it on Prime unless you have Magno- Magnolia Selects, rental purchase on Google Play, YouTube, Voodoo, the PlayStation Store, Amazon, and a, subs- a subscription service I'd never heard before called, um, Flex Fling, that's, that's the appropriate reaction. Do with that one what you will. But um, yeah, that does it for um, the host. Uh, it is always easy to get in touch with me if you uh, want to share some ideas or to uh, vehemently disagree with me. You can email me at badly at gmail.com. Tweet at me at fixes teeth. Or uh, chime in on comment fields on back episodes if you go to battleshipretention.com and go to the podcast uh, drop-down menu and find I Do Movies Badly or Badly.podbean.com. Seeing as it is still October and it is Halloween season, I am going to continue to plug my other podcast, The Cast of Cthulhu, um, just this past week. No. Yeah, just last week, uh, we posted episode one, in which James and I uh, discuss Stuart Gordon's 1985 reanimator, whether it's a good adaptation and or a good horror film that stands on its own. So I'd encourage you to go and check out the cast of Cthulhu. We have a Twitter for that as well. I believe it's CthulhuCast, and that is, once again, C-T-H-U-L-H-U, um, a little bit of a mouthful. But um, if nothing else, H.P. Lovecraft was a linguist, and of course a racist, but... Um, yeah, but that does it for the host. Uh, be sure to tune in next week where I'll be wrapping up October and wrapping up Bong Joon-ho with his 2017 film, Okja, and where hopefully I will be just a little bit less ignorant.